ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The first legal challenges to ChatGPT have been filed in US courts. Some of the evidence that they are putting forward says OpenAI seems to have been able to produce very, very close summaries of their works. And then there's also statements from OpenAI in which they have said that they've actually used books which they obtained off the internet and apparently obtained off unauthorized websites. Hi, Damien Kerrick here. This is The Law Report. So could these cases derail the online artificial intelligence tool? First, here in Australia, the Royal Commission into Robodebt has made damning findings against government ministers and public servants who created and administered the automated debt recovery scheme from Centrelink recipients. In a 900-page final report, Royal Commissioner Catherine Holmes described the scheme, which ran from 2015 to 2019, as illegal, unfair, crude and cruel, and found that those involved in the system were dishonest and colluded to keep illegality from coming to light. Terry Carney is a Professor Emeritus at the University of Sydney Law School, Almost from the beginning, he was calling out the scheme's illegality. Back from 2017, when he was a member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, he ruled on five separate occasions that there was no legal basis for the robo-debt policy. Terry Carney, what were the dimensions and the human impact of the robo-debt scheme? Its human impact was catastrophic. It was a tsunami of suffering. 526,000 citizens who suffered the raising of a robo-debt against them and that there were nearly 800,000 such debts, uh, 794,000 robo-debts as set out uh, in a very uh, damning chapter of the Royal Commission report, which comments that the overall amount of debt that had to be wiped off was just on $1.8 billion, billion dollars, not millions of dollars. They're staggering figures about the economic cost, the vast number of ordinary and very vulnerable citizens dependent on welfare who were affected, and the enormous suffering, which, as we know, included uh, validation by the Royal Commission of it being uh, responsible for some suicides. Indeed, uh, Jenny Miller, whose son, Reese Cowso, took his life after being wrongly pursued for an $18,000 debt, gave evidence, as did uh, Kathleen Madgwick, whose son, Jared Madgwick, ended his life when pursued for a $2,000 non-existent debt. Uh, and uh, the, the Royal Commissioner kind of acknowledged their very moving and powerful testimony. And you also talk about the economic costs, half a billion dollars at least, that's the costs of administering during a scheme which outweighed the amounts extracted rather than recovered from these vulnerable welfare recipients. Yes, exactly. They were anticipating raising about $4 billion or so. And uh, yes, the irony is, and I think that's the word that the Royal Commissioner uses, the great irony is that it ended up uh, costing the taxpayer half a billion dollars. Uh, so it was a, a net loss to the, uh, even on economic terms. But I mean, it's, it's not the dollars and cents. It's the... Uh, enormous trauma that was caused to so, so many. 
Let's walk through the fundamental failures identified in the Royal Commission report. Fundamental failures by politicians, by public servants and by in-house lawyers. Let's start with the politicians. What did the Royal Commissioner find? Well, the Royal Commissioner found that um, Cabinet was uh, misled, that uh, Scott Morrison, as the then Minister, uh, her finding is, withheld information in the submission for this measure, which had to go to Cabinet to be approved, and that um, that withheld information, in other words, uh, making no reference to the need for new legislation to be passed if a scheme was to raise debts on the basis proposed, uh, that that was not part of the submission that went forward on, on the finding of the Royal Commissioner. So he failed to meet his ministerial responsibility to ensure that it was lawful at the time it was implemented? Correct. And also Alan Tudge, also Social Services Minister for a period, the Royal Commissioner found that his use of information about Social Security recipients in the media basically monstering them in the media, represented an abuse of power. Yes, when some of those Twitter, um, not my debt and other public commentary got uh, too hot for the government, yes, it um, breached one of the most fundamental principles, not just of social security law, but of the administration of privacy and identity and dignity of all citizens information that was private to one of the people who was speaking uh, was released into the public domain. As punishment for speaking out? Yes, and it was quite successful, as the the Royal Commissioner found, and as people um, have continued to give their own personal experience of. It it frightened people uh, who otherwise would have joined the public uh, discussion and debate. They were intimidated from speaking out. Now, turning to public servants, uh, what did the Royal Commissioner have to say about Catherine Campbell, who was the Secretary of the Department of Human Services at the time RoboDebt was introduced? It was a turning of the blind eye. There was insufficient inquiry or referral for investigation of doubts that were being conveyed to the Secretary, to the head of that department, by uh, junior and well-experienced public servants within that department, indicating that uh, there were serious questions about the legality and indeed the whole arithmetic and assumptions of robo-debt. What did the Royal Commissioner have to say about the role of in-house lawyers? Uh, That they uh, did not act as in the way that uh, lawyers are trained at their most fundamental basic uh, level to act, Um, that they didn't act independently, they did not initiate um, the steps to give the frank and fearless advice. Uh, A senior, very senior public servant, now a professor, Jane Holton, is quoted in the press saying that, you know, there was a very significant coterie of public servants, uh, not only in the two departments responsible for robo-debt, but more generally, who abdicated the most fundamental obligation of a public servant, and that is to tell it straight and tell it clearly so that ministers, uh, when making decisions, are fully apprised of all the benefits and risks of any any scheme or decision that is about to be made. And that was not done by those lawyers. 
Throughout this period, when, when RoboDebt's operational, I think it's from 2015 to 2019, uh, people are challenging RoboDebt's in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Some 200 decisions come before the AAT, including, I think, five before you. What does the Royal Commissioner have to say about what happens when these cases come before the AAT and the AAT more than not throws them out and says, no, this is illegal? Yes, that's right. There were about 330-odd in the period that came before the tribunal. There was not one where there was a single indication of support for the government's position. The 200 and around 20 that you mentioned found that the whole robo-debt debt in that case was infected by complete illegality, complete lack of factual foundation and usually it was unethical. So to put this into perspective, (laughs) those couple of hundred cases, when you are judging it against the over half a million people who had an invalid robo-debt, we have about five in every 10,000 robo-debts. Only five in every 10,000 were getting to the tribunal at all. So it was absolutely imperative that the bureaucracy should have followed the requirement that is set out at the beginning of the Social Security Act. It says, in administering the Social Security Act, uh, you uh, shall pay regard to the decisions of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. The Commissioner found that the bureaucrats had no system at all in place for even collecting information about how many decisions there were and what the pattern of those decisions might have been. And what the government did was it never appealed any of these adverse rulings against it. And had it done so, the higher uh, tribunal or or, or the courts would have said, yeah, that's right, there is no legal basis for this policy. This AAT decision is correct. And that would have shone a light uh, over this illegal policy. But it never did that. And it presumably did that as a deliberate policy. Exactly. And the Royal Commissioner found, uh, makes explicit findings that there were uh, bureaucrats who advised their superiors not to appeal against particular decisions and gave as their reason that appealing it from the mass decision-making level that I sat on that uh, handles about 14,000 cases a year and which is in uh, hearings are in private and the the reasons for the decision are given only to the department and to the person affected. The person affected can release it if they wish, but they're not published on a, a central website. By appealing to the general level, uh, the second tier within uh, the AAT, the hearing would have been public and the decision would have been published uh, in a de-identified form on the uh, website called Ostley, where everybody who wanted to could read it for free. And so, yeah, public servants said, no, we recommend against appealing because this will bring the issue out into the open and that might be detrimental to the uh, continuation of, of the robo-debt scheme. You bet it was. It's immoral. It's, it's a breach of any professional public service code of ethics, or in the case of lawyers, their duty, you know, that we talk about a lawyer's duty to the court, a lawyer's obligation to the public interest. 
In the covering letter of the Royal Commission report, Commissioner Holmes says that 20 names have been referred to various authorities for further investigation around possible civil action or criminal prosecution. She mentions, I think, that there could be referrals to the Australian Federal Police. Now, that would be for what? The criminal offence of public malfeasance? What, what is that and who might be the subject of that kind of prosecution? Yes, the provision in the Commonwealth Crimes Act that uh, creates an offence, a criminal offence, of uh, malfeasance in public office when either that um, conduct leads to a personal benefit to the person, you know, failing to act or acting uh, incorrectly. I don't believe that's in play, but the second limb is. Uh, It's also an offence when you engage in that conduct and it uh, impacts uh, a member of the public. It it, it, uh, inflicts harm on some third party or a member of the public. And uh, I would imagine that um, just from reading the 900-odd pages, uh, there certainly are actions that, um, you know, might well fall within that definition. Terry Carney, there are 57 recommendations in this Royal Commission final report. Some of these 57 recommendations centre about around the checks and balances of the system which, which failed and how to make them more robust. But others focus on the way automated decisions are made by government. How significant do you think those recommendations are? I think uh, as a an ordinary citizen or a commentator on public policy, as distinct from the lawyer in me, they're by far the most important because it's inevitable that automation is going to continue to be used, that algorithms and artificial intelligence, they're part of everyday life and so they are going to be rolled out in the future in welfare settings and other settings where vulnerable citizens' rights are um, at issue. And uh, so the Royal Commission sets out a number of key critical steps for ensuring that any scheme is well designed and in particular that it's designed in very close collaboration with receiving input from and advice from the people who are going to be affected by that program. That peak bodies like the Australian Council of Social Service and welfare rights organisations and legal aid commissions get an opportunity to comment on what they see to be any uh, difficulties with uh, the use of that uh, automation in that part of the scheme. Uh, Secondly, that uh, all such schemes should ensure that the user of the scheme can understand all of it in plain, simple language. And the recommendations that um, I I guess go to uh, what uh, an academic colleague of mine uh, recently wrote, he said, uh, it's not not the issue of uh, automation and artificial intelligence that's the problem. The problem is that there's no human being who is responsible for the ultimate decision. So there's a, a set of recommendations that concentrates on ensuring that people get access to face-to-face, you know, telephone, in-person discussion with a human being and that uh, a human being documents the decision and is accountable for that decision if it is challenged as uh, not being correct or not being fully acceptable. Finally, Terry Carney, uh, something that really stood out for me was that um, the Royal Commissioner was saying the 
anti-welfare rhetoric is easy populism, when in fact the, the evidence before the Commission was that fraud in the welfare system was in, is in fact minuscule. And she stressed that we should never demonise and dehumanise welfare recipients who are often the most vulnerable people in our community. We shouldn't play political football with them. Do you agree that that is really, you know, a really central message here? Yes, I do, because she is absolutely correct in saying that no matter how well designed, well thought out the recommendations might be and how fully they might be uh, adopted, unless the culture of the people in tribunals, in courts, in the bureaucracy, politicians, etc., if, if their culture doesn't change, the recommendations are either they may at worst uh, be totally unsuccessful and at best they'll only be partially successful. And in commenting about our historic dole bludger stigmatisation, scapegoating of the unemployed, we have won every contest of, of in playing that form of political football. It's a bigger problem in Australia even than it is in other countries. And frankly, uh, around the world, we've seen that sort of scapegoating and stigmatising being responsible in uh, uh, countries like Holland, countries like Sweden, in the United States and elsewhere. There have, there have been similar scale and human suffering imposed in large measure because politicians have been uh, playing the political game of winning public support and popular support by scapegoating the unemployed or people on welfare. Terry Carney, Emeritus Professor at University of Sydney Law School and a former member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal who in five separate decisions called out the illegality of the robo-debt system. Thank you for coming into the studio and speaking to The Law Report. My pleasure. This is The Law Report on RN. I'm Damien Carrick. Do follow the program on the ABC Listen app. OpenAI, the company that created ChatGPT, has just been hit with a number of lawsuits. In the first action, two top-selling novelists say that the artificial intelligence tool has breached their copyright. In a second action, 16 plaintiffs argue that ChatGPT violated their privacy. Professor William Van Carnegie is an intellectual property law expert based at Bond University. For some months now, he's been anticipating these types of test cases. So what impact could they have? I think these are incredibly significant pieces of litigation. It's very early days, of course. Uh, this was only filed a couple of weeks ago in, in both cases. One relates to copyright interests and to what extent OpenAI has been using copyright material, scraping it, copying it off the net to train its uh, systems. And the other relates to private data, which it also is uh, accused of having scraped, copied. There's even uh, talk of theft in the complaint or the, the claim. Both are class actions. So the one represents a couple of authors on behalf of other copyright owners and the other uh, represents a class of uh, individual citizens whose private data have allegedly been scraped, collected by OpenAI. Well, starting with the breach of copyright case, tell me about the two novelists who have commenced litigation, I think in the federal court in San Francisco. 
That's exactly right. As you said, I think in your intro, they're quite um, well-known published authors with quite a wide readership. An interesting issue that we've been wondering about for a while is we suspected this type of thing was happening. In other words, that uh, copyright works were being copied to then uh, train the system of OpenAI. But uh, it's been very obscure as to how this might happen. And some of the evidence that they are putting forward says, well, OpenAI seems to have been able to produce very close summaries of their works. And then there's also statements from OpenAI uh, made in the last few years in which they have said that they've actually used a collection of books which they obtained off the internet and apparently obtained off unauthorized websites on the internet where these books were stored and then made available by BitTorrent systems. There's talking of 294,000 books in in one collection, if you like, of OpenAI or that OpenAI is might, and 63,000 in another. So we're talking here about um, shadow libraries, yes. which, which publish illegally thousands of copyrighted books. And that's a material which has been kind of scraped by ChatGPT. And when, you know, questions are posed by consumers, a, a kind of a, a spitting out detailed summaries of, of the works of these authors and many others. And the authors, just for, for listeners to let them know, the authors in question are Paul Tremblay. He's, a, he's an American author and editor of, of horror, dark fantasy and science fiction books. And I think his, his novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, was made into a recent Hollywood film titled Knock at the Cabin. And also the other author is Mona Awad, who's known for works of dark comic fiction, including 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl and also Bunny. So how is ChatGPT using their writings? It's, it's, the company is using it to train its AI systems. It seems that books obviously are only one of the elements uh, that are scraped or copied off the internet to train the chat GPT system, but it, uh, they're alleging, well, this is actually very important because here you have quality expression and it's quality expression that we are trying, as, as chat GPT, trying to produce in response to the questions of users of the system. So they're arguing, the novelists are arguing that ChatGPT has obtained illegal online copies of mm. the book. It's kind of yep. storing and reproducing their copyrighted books on its database and then reproducing or using the books to respond to questions posed by users of ChatGPT. But, but, but going well beyond kind of any kind of fair use or fair dealing in the material, it is breaching, breaching their copyrights. Well, it does seem like uh, simply the scraping or, in other words, copying of these books, for instance, into some database or another that is uh, governed by OpenAI, that in itself would constitute a reproduction in copyright terms, a copy, uh, which is done without authorization, because obviously the, the publishers and the authors, etc., have never been asked anything about this. And importantly, they're not being compensated for this use of their works. So that would constitute a reproduction of those works and be an infringement of copyright. And then when it comes to users using the system, inputting a question and then text is generated for them, well, that expression is kind of um, based on or has been trained or has been made human sounding, etc., by the use of the works that are stored by OpenAI, but it itself probably doesn't literally copy passages from books, etc. So whether there's an infringement at that level is uh, more difficult to say. Aha. So, so you're telling me that the infringement is storing and using the books to generate answers, not actually the answers themselves. I think 
the first case, the copying of the books and storing them in a database, there it's a pretty strong case, I'd say, in terms of copyright infringement. There's no authorization and all of that. And it's, it's literal copying. When it comes to the user's interface with the ChatGPT system, ChatGPT does seem to generate its own literary expression, its own uh, natural sounding language, what's the whole point of the system. In doing that, it doesn't normally, usually copy expressly specific literary passages from works it has stored in its training sort of uh, system. What do you reckon? I mean, if this breach of copyright action is successful, will this, uh, you know, undermine the whole chat GPT model? It certainly has that potential, or at least uh, it might go some way to finding some way in which copyright owners whose works are used in this manner are compensated. Mm. Okay, let's now talk about the second lawsuit. 16 plaintiffs say that ChatGPT is violating their privacy. How so? Basically, the accusation or the allegation in that is that OpenAI, on an absolutely massive scale, scrapes, gathers, ingests, is a term used, information of the internet. And so that, for instance, where any internet user uh, interacts with a certain platform or uses certain communication technologies online, etc., all that is picked up by these bots that scrape the internet and copy this information from it and is stored and then obviously can be used to some extent for generating natural sounding language because you're talking about ordinary conversations conducted online, etc., but also gathers uh, private information that is commercially very valuable and that uh, could be turned to account by OpenAI. And this is all done in total disregard of uh, privacy laws in the United States. And it constitutes, according to the claim, a numerous number of wrongs, from invasion to, uh, of privacy to negligence to larceny, receipt of stolen property, conversion, unjust enrichment, etc. So it's a very, very wide claim. It runs over 151 pages. Well, indeed, I, I understand that the lawsuit says that OpenAI has integrated its systems with the Snapchat, Spotify, Stripe, Slack and Microsoft Teams. So the idea being that it's just secretly gathering the kind of images, locations, financial details, private communications on all these other platforms and using it in chat GPT and doing that in violation of the terms of service of, of all these platforms. So it could, again, could this litigation, if it's successful, derail chat GPT? Well, I think um, it's important to chat GPT to have masses of data, that's for sure, because that um, kind of perfects its, its system. Obviously, this will take a long time to go through the court, so we're not talking about uh, tomorrow, I would say, that uh, suddenly be an injunction and all this has to stop. We don't know exactly what's going on. Part of the litigation will reveal that. But it does have the potential, in theory, to prevent this type of uh, scraping that OpenAI does, but then perhaps also to compensate for it. But because data from so many, many, many millions and millions of individuals uh, is at stake, it's hard to uh, kind of envisage how that would work in terms of being compensated for information obtained via the system that uh, that otherwise is is private and that you have to consent for them to uh, to obtain. So, in very practical terms, it seems uh, unlikely that the system could operate if the uh, plaintiffs uh, somehow can force the hand of OpenAI and ChatGPT and make them ask for authorization to use private information and then pay for it in some way or offer to do so. 
Professor William Van Carnegie, Bond University intellectual property law expert. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. My pleasure, Damien. And it looks like there's more to come. In another case, OpenAI and Facebook's parent company Meta have been sued by American comedian Sarah Silverman and two other authors who also claim that their copyrighted work has been used without their permission. Watch this space. That's The Law Report for this week. Do follow us on the ABC Listen app. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and to technical producer Tim Simons. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. Listener.